reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 35. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who will marry will have worldly troubles, 
and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undevoted in undivided devotion to the Lord. Thank you, Abby. As you can see, my strategy is to make other people read the harder passages. And this is definitely hard and long, and you could preach a lot of sermons. Um, but we will do it in a normal amount of time. So bear with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it means that we are your children, that we are longing to be reunited to you. And Lord, we have a lot of questions about our life, this side of heaven. And I pray this morning you would help us to understand a little bit more what it would look like to follow you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I was flipping channels this week and I came across, uh, I think it was Stephen Colbert interviewing the newest Grizzly Adams candidate, that is the guy that, you know, you always have the guy and pop culture that uh, he trains bears. That's what he does. He's got the beard and he lives with bears. Uh, it'll be not long before we hear of his demise and we'll, we'll weep and watch a few videos and then the next guy will come along. Well, this guy was giving some advice on what to do if you're out and about and you come across a bear. And I, I don't even think I knew the answer, but what, what shocked me was apparently with black bears, you, you don't run. You just you make eye contact, but you move away, okay? But brown bears, which include grizzlies, Kodiaks, like the bad ones, you, you, stand, you stay put, okay? Now, just so you know, if something happens to you, and this is your only, this sermon's your only, like, knowledge of what I've just said, please don't follow it. Just do whatever the heck you want, unless you've studied on your own what you're supposed to do with the bear attack. But what I'm telling you is, for the rest of us who that'll never happen to, these are your suggestions. But both of them hinge on this sort of staying calm, right? And that, that's the most crazy part. Like, I'm walking around Colorado or wherever, Alaska or Wyoming or Montana, and I see a bear, I'm not going to stay calm. And so, with Corinth, uh, the culture is coming at Corinth, and they are not staying calm. Last week, we heard Paul explaining to them, you probably shouldn't go to prostitution, Right? So this is one extreme. This is like one of the types of bears. But now he's saying to the other group, probably the group that wrote to him, um, it's actually okay for you to engage intimately with your spouse. So there's great confusion in light of the culture. And I think in our present context as well, with the way culture is shaping, and it always has been, this is nothing new, inside the church and inside our hearts, we're not sure how to flourish. 
We're not sure how to walk with Christ. And what this passage teaches, believe it or not, there's all this stuff that I need to unpack a little bit. But what it says is the victorious, the victorious Christian life actually comes by embracing the mundane. That's actually the title of the sermon, is The Mundane Romance. That's like an oxymoron in this culture. Romance is exciting, it's vibrant, it's wild, right? There's stories. Mundanity, mundane, being mundane is, is not what you want. But I think this t- passage teaches the opposite. That the Christian life, in a way, is going to feel mundane. And that means you're probably doing it right. And I'll unpack that as we go. Two broad points. Embracing the mundane, and then secondly, the part everyone will probably be waiting for, relationships in the mundane. Okay, so embracing the mundane. Chapter 7 is 40 verses. We only read 35. Thank you, Abby. And right smack in the middle, Paul takes kind of an excursus, starting in verse 17, which starts out with only, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Paul is saying something that really, in our modern ears, is crazy. In an American setting, you don't tell people, I think things are fine right where you are. The, absolute, the, the default mode in the American mind is, I don't know anything about you, I don't know what you're doing, but probably it's wrong and you should improve, right? Or at least it's okay, but you could get better. We don't really tell people, I think what you're doing right now is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Stay there, stay the course. Uh, I grew up loving self-help books, and probably because I like change, probably some sort of a psychological attempt to get rid of shame or, or whatever, but it's this constant drumbeat of change. And yet Paul says, live as you are called. Stay where you are. And we don't like that. Um, and then verse 19 is even more shocking. Look at that if you will. Um, excuse me, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he or she was called. Right? Verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. Now that is, that, doesn't that sound like heresy in an American's ears? And yet I find great comfort in this. Not because Paul's saying what he's not saying is slavery is okay. Trust me, he's not saying that. Read the letter of Philemon. But what he is saying is if you're a slave in the Roman world, first of all, freedom doesn't seem to usually be an option. It's bad slavery. Some people want to say, well, it wasn't like our slavery. It was sometimes worse, sometimes better, but nonetheless, slavery is bad. And he's suggesting, if you can, avail yourself of freedom, right? If that's an option, please take it. But here's the beautiful news. Even as a slave, you can be amazing. You can live a victorious Christian life as a slave. What? Well, Paul himself was in jail for many of the letters he wrote. And I've said this before, but how many of us would, would not spend all of our time trying to get out? Every letter would be to the lawyer, right? People, to family, please do whatever you can. I'm innocent. Paul takes time to minister to the church in prison. And there's where a lot of our pastoral epistles come from and other epistles that Paul wrote. I had the opportunity to go to youth group. Actually, it was at our house, so I walked into my living room. And Aaron was teaching, as he's been doing this whole semester, through the life of Joseph. And Aaron is in business, and he said to the group, I love Joseph. Because Joseph shows me that it's not mundane to do your daily work. If you remember, Joseph was the favored brother in Genesis. His, his brothers um, attacked him. He had the coat, right, of many colors. And he 
uh, I think it was Reuben, who said, let's not kill him, let's just send him into slavery. And so he does go into slavery, and there he flourishes at Potiphar's house, right? And then Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. He runs, she lies. He goes into Pharaoh's prison, even worse. But what happens? He succeeds. He, he, he focuses on what he's good at. He does it well, and he rises to the top to where eventually he rules Egypt. And that story is so encouraging, I think. There's a million reasons. But one is, it shows you, and what Aaron was saying was, if you focus on what's in front of you, what God's called you to do, and you do it well, you can flourish. But so much, what we do is we want out. We always want to avail ourselves of every opportunity of escape from bad jobs, bad relationships, bad situations. And Paul is saying, actually, stop doing that, if, if possible. There's a tendency in the Christian world, especially when you become a Christian, or maybe it's at a point in life where it, it becomes real to you, and those are good things, where there's a tendency to just burn your albums, you know, get rid of everything that went on before, break off every relationship, right? And that's the circumcision, uncircumcision. The assumption is everything from my past, my circumcision, my religion, my, my, or my uncircumcision, my Greekness, whatever it is, uh, is all bad and it all has to go. Practically speaking, you do want to avoid areas that will tempt you to sin. No doubt about it. But so often we attach sin to everything from our past or to everything in our moment. So we come to Christ sometimes in a little bit of a false way of hoping for change. So maybe if I get religious, I get spiritual, it'll give me the reason to get out of whatever I'm in. Whereas Paul comes along and says, maybe you should stay right where you are, because that's where growth will really take place. We see this, by the way, in art. We see this, um, one of the pieces of art that came to my mind this week was, um, if you know Monet, he was an impressionist. The impressionists would take very ordinary things and paint them in such a way that you and I would go, that's what that looks like? And so he painted hay bales. Remember the hay bales? If you've ever seen his hay bales, he, there's a whole series of nothing but hay bales. Now this is France, so they're a little bit prettier than our modern rolled up looking ones. These look more like the cupcake version with the pretty pyramid top. But nonetheless, it's just a hay bale, right? But he was able to present it, each one, in such a way, whether it's the lighting, whether it was the, the, his closeness or distance from it, that it really, it, it blossomed before your very eyes. Now, it was, it's mundane. Like, you look at that going, how much time did he spend sitting in that field painting these hay bales? And yet, just like last week, and this is already planned, I already put this in the ideal. I want to talk about Monet. I saw on the news, one of those paintings sold for $81.4 million, or 84.1. Either way, do you think that Monet set out to paint that painting going, I want to make 84 million or whatever. Let's say it was just 5 million back then, whatever. That's a lot of money. Do you think, what kind of a painting would have possibly ever happened? And when I were art majors, we were graphic design majors. So we were the ones in the computer lab most of the time, but we took a few painting courses with the other people. And they were always trying to be provocative. None of them were just painting anything. It was always like, oh, I'm going to do the most amazing, you know, I don't know where those people went but they're not doing art anymore, okay? Um, the people that do art well get into the mundane and they tell the truth and it pops. And that's a picture of life, isn't it? That really some of the most beautiful things in life come when the person simply accepts where they are. Have you accepted that? Have you accepted the mundanity of your life? 
Or are you constantly trying to get past it? Okay, there you go. That's the entrance. Now, why do I bring up all of that? Because now we have sort of this way to understand relationships in the mundane. Okay? We're going to look at marriage, singleness, excuse me, happy marriage, singleness, unhappy marriage. All of it with this idea of the mundane. So, beginning with marriage, probably the most uh, provocative part of this whole passage is this first part. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, in the ESV, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is once again, and if you weren't here last week, he did this in the last few passages, he's giving these quotes that some of these folks would live by. Or maybe arguments that they used. What we actually have going on, by the way, he's finally answering the questions that some of these people have asked in Corinth. Chapters 1 through 6 were not asked. He had heard reports. He talked about those reports. Chapter 7, he's like, now concerning what you wrote about, probably what's happening is, you remember there's factions in Corinth. The Paul people want to hear him. So they've written questions to Paul in a letter. Meanwhile, he's heard these reports from the non-Paul people, the Apollos, the Cephas, the other ones. And so he's dealt with that for six chapters, and now he's bringing up this passage as well. And that's why it looks so different in the sense that it looks like, wait, in chapter 6, they're doing crazy things sexually. Who in Corinth is saying, don't even have sexual relationships with your spouse? And you find that in, in, in life, this pendulum swing happens, where you go from like, do whatever you want. You see this in Christianity, right? I'm in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Go, go, go crazy. The other group, I'm in Christ. I can't do anything. I've got to sit and pray and do nothing else. Paul's got answers for both. And so he dealt with them last week. Stop it. <laughs> in Jesus, flee sexual immorality. But he's looking at these folks and he's going, maybe it's time for you all to enjoy your spouses a little bit more fruitfully. That's my message to you. Okay, but what makes this so crazy? It sounds very much like Paul's anti-woman. First blush, we are, tempt, we are tempted to read Scripture through our lens, right? We, we have our cultural lens. And so it sounds like he's saying, women, your body is not your own, it's your husband's. What? That's, what is, what? that's not modern. Like, no one in our current world would ever think that's good news. But there's a lot more to it, than, and I don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to be quick. So if I speak fast, I'm sorry. Listen to it in, like, half speed later. He says something that never had been said up to that point to women. You want to hear what he says to women? Women, your husband's bodies are yours. In the ancient world, that had never been said. Paul is not anti-woman. He's pro-marriage, and he's pro-gospel-centered marriage. And what he is saying here is so profound because, first of all, he's breaking this crazy myth that our culture totally embraces that sex and marriage stops at wedding night. Every movie, every story about romance ends at the wedding, if it even includes a wedding at all anymore, right? What happened five, what happened five years later? Well, they probably, you know, don't get along, whatever. That's not the story. Whereas for Christians, we're like, this is where the story begins. In a healthy marriage, in a happy marriage, I'm going to get a little bit, I know this is the third sermon in a row, but sex is not going to be great at the beginning, and it's going to get progressively better throughout the marriage. That's the picture, right? And it happens to the degree that the husband and wife 
have intimacy in their lives together. In fact, the the reason he gives for not having sexual relations with your spouse is intimate prayer. So I guess a good question, husbands and wives, are we praying together? Are we spending time in prayer in such a way that we're, it's, it's somewhat intimate, sharing the gospel or sharing our walk with God together? Okay, next. So we have this idea we've just destroyed, I hope. I did it in three seconds, but the world's view is wrong. Okay, but what's going on? Like, what about, um, why, what else is happening in this idea of sharing a, a, a body, so to speak? One of the things, I've thought about this passage a lot, so I'm not a real big philosophy guy, meaning I don't understand it very well. Um, but Plato, and I had to even ask Doug, was it Plato? He's like, yeah, it's Plato. Plato had this theory that behind every object was sort of the good, the real. That, have you heard of this? Like there's an ultimate chair somewhere in heaven. That all chairs are sort of are trying to, like shadows of us trying to clamor toward. And of course, other things like good and evil. But what about bodies? See, in our, so what happens in our culture is every guy and every girl has in their mind the ultimate body they're after of the opposite sex, right? And then they just hope it's their spouses. Well, here's what the Bible teaches. Your spouse is the ultimate body. And that's kind of, I think that could be like life-changing when you start to think this way. It's not, well, I like brunettes, my wife's a blonde. No, no, no. My wife's a blonde, I like my wife's hair. Would you like all blondes? No. I like my wife's. My wife shaves her head. I like people with shaved heads. Or just my wife. She has shaved hair. Does that make sense? Unfortunately for women, you have to start liking guts. Um, That's the way it's going to go. We'll do our best to work out, but you've got to. Why is this important? This is not the way the world works. The world doesn't think this way. So what's happening is, unfortunately, spouses are always trying to look like they think the other spouse wants them to look rather than simply being who they are in Christ. It gets better. What about the proverbial headache? Right? You know, well, the Corinthians says you're mine, you're my body, and you we need to be blah blah blah, and you say you have a headache. No, you know what I'm talking about? Well, or think about what Paul's doing here. If you're in a marriage and you're not intimate together, and let's assume one of the partners says, I don't feel well. The other partner should say, that means I don't feel well. And I don't, would never want to do certain things if I don't feel well. So maybe I'll rub your shoulders, get you some Advil, let you go to bed. That might actually help the other side of things. But the point is, maybe the gospel could actually transform our marriages when we get stuck moving toward the mundane elements of it versus trying to bring in the world's crazy methodologies which will never work. Do you love your spouse well? Are you interested in this marriage like we're talking about? Okay. Wow, you could spend a lot of time on this on those things, right? You all probably want maybe even more. Give me more. This is good. But we're moving to something a little different, a little harder. Singleness. The mon- and this is hard. I'm just going to move through these things. I'm obviously not single, so I'm treading on hallowed ground. But guess what? Paul was not married, and he just told us how to live. I'm not Paul. But I have talked to some single friends, and I want to just share a few things from this passage that are important. Number one, verse six, Paul says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I'm going to pause there and address one theological question that might be raising in your mind as we read this passage. 
Paul does a couple of things. Not a command, but a concession. Okay? What he's saying there is there are gray areas you choose. Then the other places he says, not I but the Lord, not the Lord but I. Both are Scripture. Okay? What he's telling them is Jesus actually said these things and I'm reporting that to you. But in other ways, I'm just reporting as the apostle who because of my role as an apostle, it's still Scripture. He's just giving them the nuance, but it's all Scripture. However, when you get to the concession in verse 6, he's giving you the choice. What's the choice? If you're single, he says, I wish that you or all people would avail your, or would um, do as I, or he says it this way, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God. Paul calls his singleness a gift. Okay. I don't have a ton of time to spend on singleness, but we have a big problem with this in our culture. We have a big problem with this in this, not this particular church, but the modern church, and maybe in this one, because it's hard to know how to include single people for married people. They struggle with that. And then single people are trying to figure out, how do I get to know married people? That's a challenge. So the first thing I want to address is the idea of gift. Um... We don't always want the gifts we're given. Um, grandma's sweater. But when it gets cold, I'm glad I have the sweater, right? But it's also, t- gifts can be temporary. So, in other words, this is across the, all, if I have a momentary gift of some sort of an ailment, for example, biblically speaking, I should see this as the way God would sanctify me. But I want to get better. So, single folks, I want you to know it's possible, and I think this is teaching, to both embrace the momentary gift of singleness while if if you desire in your heart to be married, pray for that and long for that as well. You can do both. That's what's in this passage, right? And so Paul is saying, however, while you're single, be single well. I called a friend of mine, um, actually one of Emily's best friends and our best friends from, from way back when, Mary Beth Minnis, who is in ministry, with Crusade, really close with the Frickenschmidt. Some of you know the Frickenschmidt. She lives in Austin. Uh, phenomenal woman who is single, and she's, I believe, 40, almost 40. If I called her, because we've talked about this in the past, I just said, what traps should I not walk into? So she gave me some great advice. And she, but here's her story. She has flourished being single, but her heart's broken. She wants to be married. Uh, and here's one of the things. What she said stood out so well. She said, Ryan, everyone is waiting for something. The question is, are you waiting well? And that's really the message. She didn't know what passage I was preaching, but that's the message of the mundane, isn't it? How are you waiting for what you're waiting for? Are you doing it with anxiety, or are you doing it with peace and calm? Are you doing it trusting the Lord or not? Uh, One of the writers on singleness that um, is now married is named Pam Benton, who is a phenomenal teacher. Her, Her father... Paige Benton, thank you. Um, Paige Benton, although her sister is Pam. Her mom is Pam. Okay, back up, go forward, move around. Singled out by God for good. It's a great article. You can Google it. I found it online. Um, Her dad is Wilson Benton, who was the pastor at Crook of the Hills in St. Louis for years. Here's what she says. Much has been written in Christian circles about singleness. The, uh, The objective is usually either to chide the married population for their misunderstanding and segregationism, which needs to be done. Come on, married people. Quit seeing them as single people is different, okay? 
or to empathize with unmarried folks and, and, and sort of teach them to bear their cross. Come on, single people, do better. But she says both of those are often bolstered only by the consolation prize of innumerable ser- sermons on 1 Corinthians 7. Here we are. So she got me. And the fact that you can cut your toenails in bed. Right? And that is true. A lot of things people will say, hey, it's okay to be single. You don't have to clean your house. No one cares or whatever. And I will say, by the way, I heard from a, a few folks, that, some folks that are single will say there are a lot of benefits. Like I can travel. I can go where I want to go. I can make sort of life decisions based on what God's calling me to do. Conversely, there was a, a couple, um, I heard the story where the guy felt called to go like to California or somewhere, but said, I really can't. My wife's not really wanting to go there. A legitimate thing. We're not, that's not, Paul's not bashing that reality, and it can go both ways. The wife might feel a desire that the husband doesn't want to change. The point is there are burdens being married. However, what I appreciated about this article is what she says this at the end. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all-new corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. That's beautiful. Being single is not a test. It's not if you do it well then. It's not a punishment. It simply is. Just like marriage. And other things in this list, right? Divorce and being a widow. We aren't sure why the things come to us that come to us. Even illness and other things and loss. But the question is how are we handling them? And are we handling them in Christ? And are we waiting well? And then I just want to mention one other group, the betrothed. Uh, This is a little bit less common in our culture. I've never met someone engaged who asked me, should I get married? I mean, I really love the person, but I'm just thinking Jesus might be coming home and no one's ever done that to me. So if you're the first, please, I would love to grab coffee. Ryan, I'm just wondering. But the truth is, for Paul, there is a, he, he's sort of presenting this reality, and he wasn't wrong about his eschatology. That don't think Paul, it's been 2,000 years. He's saying, look, since Jesus has risen, our entire being should be caught up in his return. And for some of us, that might mean not getting married, and for others, it might mean getting married. But just as an encouragement, Paul says, I want, to, I want to free you from anxieties, verse 32, chapter 7. I want you to be free from anxiety. Now, what I would have thought is, okay, every time I've talked to someone who's single that wants to get married, they're full of anxiety, right? And, Paul, and, and then when I talk to people who are recently married, oftentimes they're calm. It's great. I'm so glad we're married. We finally be together and all that. And that's great. But listen to how Paul describes it in in verse 32 following. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So men, you don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) That's my first hallelujah in a sermon ever. I hope that got recorded. But listen to verse 34. 
And actually, it's an odd place where it ends, and his interests are divided. Then he goes on to say, And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Wow. What's the challenge? This is not just to the betrothed or the single. It's to every one of us. He is saying, Paul is saying, because it's not just getting married. It's uh, You get married, but now you're anxious about children. You're anxious about your job. You're anxious about worldly things. We're all caught up in that. How is our, how is our business going? What's, our, what's the outcome of that medical test going to be? We're constantly worried about this life. And Paul is saying it's possible to have those anxieties gone and to rest in the Lord and actually long to know Him and to please the Lord. That is profound. And if it's in here, that means it's an opportunity that I think we all have to pray for. So that was singleness. Now I want to talk about unhappy marriage. In verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And he repeats it for the uh, husband and the woman. So if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to li- live with her, she should not divorce him. There's only, this is going to be the most crazy thing I'm going to say, and every one of you is going to question this, but there's no reason you should be in an unhappy marriage if both of you are Christians. That's what Paul's teaching. So if you come and you say, I have an unhappy marriage, we're both Christians, I want to say someone's not living like it. And probably both, right? Because Paul, is, he's already talked about the, the, the man living with his stepmom and how we're not to call ourselves brother and live in simple lifestyles. And what I often would say I, we, we'd find in marriages that are unhappy is somewhere along the way with certain things, one or both parties is not living like a believer. So there's hope, if you're both Christians, that Jesus could redeem the marriage. But the other side of that is, and this is the hardest part, what if you're in an unhappy marriage because you're living like Christ wants you to live, but your spouse is not? And I'm afraid there's a lot of marriages like that in our world. And that's hard. And, you know, I wish I could say to you, here are three or four really good techniques to get it back on track. And Paul says at the end of that part, in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I do think the point is, are you longing for the salvation of your partner? But there's something else that I think in this passage just grips me, and that is this. Um, I'm, I have a particular view of divorce with children because I grew up in a home of divorce. Um, I would say neither of my parents were Christians. Now my mother is. My dad, if he were here, would look at you and say, no, I'm not. Not at all. We could talk about it. Um, I would also say in my situation, it's possible though it's hard to come to this conclusion, that it was better for me. I think it would have probably not been great for me to live with my dad. He's not abusive. I don't think he'd have been abusive. But there are, are things that probably are, are better for, for me, and that's a good conversation we could have some point, that I wasn't. But I will also say there was deep scarring. And there is deep scarring for children. And so when Paul says something, look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Paul is talking about the covenant. He's saying, 
the goal, I mean, when you have children, you're no longer playing this game of romance, even though we want romance in marriage. The question is, what's best for the children? And so many divorces that I know of, so many partners that are unhappy, that's sort of secondary. In our culture, where divorce is becoming so rampant, there's an actual belief that it doesn't even bother the kid. And it does. Um, and I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying, because Emily and I have dear friends, and, and no one knows these people, they're in the city, who are right now separated. Both are believers. And we just, they have children, and we just want to cry out. They're not returning any phone calls. You know, stop it for the sake of your children. Here's the good news, though. Paul does say if the divorce happens, there's hope, right? He obviously says if the husband or the wife that are unbelievers leave, God can still sanctify that child and will sanctify that child. So there's hope. But all I'm trying to get at is are we thinking about our children in these situations? Um, this week, I saw, the, it went viral. Maybe you saw it too. The, the picture and the story that goes with it says, I guess it was a divorce hearing where a child, I don't know if they're talking about custody at this point or not, but the child who's four simply lays on the ground in the courtroom, just lays down. And apparently this wasn't the kind of thing where that was okay, so they kind of needed to stop proceedings. And, you know, and so the, the officer who's in charge of the court walked over to the child, laid down next to that child. Now later... The mom was interviewed and said, yeah, our, this son has been doing this lately. It's his only way to deal with his grief. Like, he just lays down. So the officer gets right down next to that child and looks at him in the eyes. And we don't know what she says. You just begin to whisper softly in his ear. And finally he stood up and was able to regain his seat and composure. And they interviewed her later and they said, where in your police training did this come from? To learn to think about that. She said, it wasn't my police training. I'm also a mom. And that story, to me, gives hope because we all are that child. Every single one of us is an orphan, aren't we? And every single one of us doesn't know what to do about the brokenness in our life, whether it's our marriage, our singleness, if we, ha- if we are widowed, if, we are, if our spouse has left us, if we left our spouse, and here we are, if, if we've, we're, we're afraid of what we're doing to our children, whether we're with them, or all these things of, of life are on our minds. And the Gospel is saying, you have someone who has pursued you, who has come next to you, like this officer. But more profoundly, Jesus has taken us into His arms, and He's the cleft, right? He's the rock that we hide in. And so the point of this entire passage is not to get caught up in each of these states, whether you're single or married or divorced or widowed or all the things. Though they offer great advice, the idea is, is your passion Jesus? Not because you want to go be somebody, but because He was somebody and found you. Is that your story? Are you resting in Him? And here's the fruit. Here's the test. If so, there will be peace. You can look at your life and say, it is well with my soul. It doesn't mean I don't want to avail myself of growth, but it means right now I can be okay and walk with Him. Let us pray. Father, we constantly run to other things. 
and our hearts are constantly agitated. And as Augustine said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. My prayer this morning for myself and my brothers and sisters here is that we would believe the Gospel freshly, that we would find our rest in You. And Lord, we give You praise that even when we're not, even when we are anxious, even when we're restless, You hold us, sometimes even tired. And Lord, the things that come our way that we think are possibly punishments, they're not. Teach us to relish them. Teach us to understand that even though we don't want conflicts, don't want problems, and don't want brokenness, we can grow in the mundane by embracing our life in You. Only by the power of Your Spirit working in us through Your Word and through just the might that You bring. I pray we address in You alone, Jesus. Amen.